0: I'm carrying on here this morning. We're carrying, we're continuing in the book of uh, Exodus and walking through. And uh, you could ask the uh, the elders here, um, Matt and Will. Uh, I've visited with them on how fast, how slow should we go through the rest of the book of Exodus? There, there is a lot of really awesome stuff in the book of Exodus. How many of you have seen Indiana Jones? And Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay, so if you've seen that movie, you know that I can't just rush through verses ten through twenty-two of Exodus chapter twenty-five, right? They find they find the ark, and then it's like the German guys get it, and then Indiana and what's the girl he's with? What's her name? What's her name? In the yeah. The, 1981 is when that movie came out. I was four. Harrison Ford is now 78 or 79. Um, so this was a few years ago. Anyway, he tells her, don't, whatever you do, don't what? Don't open your eyes. Don't look. Don't, when they take the lid off of the Ark of the Covenant, don't look. And remember. It, okay, this afternoon, here's some, here's some homework. This is a, a way that will serve your soul on a Sunday afternoon. Go on, on YouTube, Google the scene where they open the ark, and the, the, the effects are terrible. I mean, it's just like, you know, to watch it now, you're like, oh my goodness, we thought that was really cool back in 1981. I didn't watch it when I was four, by the way, I was a little bit older. Um, yeah, and so people's faces are melting, and I'm not going to give anything else away. So, Now here's, I'm using this, yes, as a funny illustration as a way for us to intro into the Ark of the Covenant, but here's the deal. Unfortunately for many Christians, that's about as much as you know about this piece of furniture in the temple of God. For, For many of us, the extent of our Bible understanding and theological understanding of the Ark of the Covenant is don't look inside it or your face will melt off. I know because I watched it on television, Well, there's, there's more to the Ark of the Covenant than simply looking at it will result in uh, significant harm to yourself. Unfortunately, I'm afraid that many of us have sloppy thinking about the Ark of the Covenant. Let me just ask you a few questions. What does the Ark of the Covenant mean? And I mean specifically, what do these words mean? mean what what is an ark what is a covenant why is this box with angel figures on top called an ark and why is it called the ark of the covenant what does that even mean sometimes sometimes we call it the mercy seat what what does that mean? is it a seat does god sit on this box and therefore it's a seat of mercy why does Israel have this ark why did God tell them to make this ark why did God tell them to make it the way that he told them to make it what's the deal with this box well no more sloppy thinking in Exodus chapter 25 verse 10 it says this they shall make an ark of acacia wood Two cubits. A cubit is about 18 inches. And remember, uh, from, from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger when your hand is held flat, that's, that's how they kind of guesstimated. I'm sure they had a standardized way, but that, that's what a cubit was. About 18 inches. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its, half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. On the inside and outside shall you overlay it and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. Jay, can you go ahead and put that image up there on the screen? So while I'm reading, if people want to look at, uh, you can't, okay, I'm sorry. I, 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 I should have had it even, an even better. Um, farthest to the left there, the, the, that box with the poles through it is representative of the, um, the Ark of the Covenant. You can kind of see there that there's some angel figures on top of it. Number uh, Verse 12, you shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. We'll talk about that in a, in a little bit, but what, what, is this, what does that mean? What, what's the testimony that goes in there? You shall make a mercy seat of it, or a mercy cover. And In our minds, the word seat is not particularly helpful. Okay, So a, a, a lid, a cover, something like that, that's actually an even better way for us to understand what, what's going on here. You shall make a mercy cover of pure gold. Now, this isn't acacia wood related gold with gold. This is just pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. That's the same dimensions as the, as the ark. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end of one piece with the mercy seat. You shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you there. I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people. And now, flip over to chapter 37. The, this second part, the second half of the book of Exodus is interesting. God gives instructions on how to make these different items in the tabernacle. And then, there's actually recording of the making of the, the uh the Ark of the Covenant, and so we're going to read those verses here quickly as well. Chapter 37, verses 1 through 9, Bezalel made the Ark of Acacia Wood. Okay, and I think when we stop and think about this, it adds reality to what's happening here. There was a real man, and if you would have dressed him in our clothes and put him in this room, you wouldn't have been able to distinguish him. He was a real guy. He was a man. He was a He was a a worker with his hands like many of you, and we're going to learn later that he was skilled by God in a unique way, but he was a human being, and his job was to make the holiest piece of furniture in the history of the universe. This was his job. Two cubits and a half was its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and out, and made a molding of gold around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold for its four feet two rings on its one side, and two rings on its other side. And he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. And he put the poles in the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark. And he made a mercy seat of pure gold two cubits and a half. Its length and a cubit and a half its breadth, and he made two cherubim of gold, and he made them of hammered work on the ends of the mercy seat. One cherub on the one end, and one cherub on the other end, of one piece with the mercy seat, and he made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces one to another, toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. That's almost exactly what we just read. So God says, here's how you make it. Here's exactly how you make it. And Bezalel makes it exactly the way God makes it. This ark, this ark of the covenant, this mercy seat, this teaches us something. It teaches us something incredibly important. It teaches us something that unless we spend a few minutes with our Bibles open and our minds engaged, you're going to continue to live the rest of your life with as little understanding as you may have of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, now some of you may have studied it in in depth, but I must confess that prior to my study for this sermon, I kind of had an Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark understanding of the Ark of the Covenant. It's a holy thing. It's a really important thing. It shows that God is with us. Brothers and sisters, there are some things that we're going to learn together that if you'll give your attention to this for the next little while. I'm not going to put a time limit For the next little while, I I think that God will show you some things about himself from this piece of furniture that will rejoice your heart and give you even greater confidence in your Savior. My main point this morning is this, and you're like, where? I'm going to read this, and you're going to think, I'm not sure where we're going to get this from that passage. Only blood will bring mercy in the face of justice only blood will bring mercy in the face of justice where am i going to get that from two and a half cubits by one and a half cubit by overlaid with gold by cherubim with their face facing each other father would you please bless our time together spirit would you please help us to see what is here in your word We're not going to learn unless you help us. So God, give us a few minutes together this morning with unhurried and uninterrupted time to hear from you in your word. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Last week we talked about the tabernacle and how God has delivered his people from the country of Egypt and they are wandering in the wilderness and God wanted to communicate things about himself and have this tabernacle built, and we learn things about the construction of the tabernacle and the contents of the tabernacle and uh, the layout of the tabernacle that taught us things about God, not just about furniture, but about God. And and this morning we're going to we're just continuing in the book of Exodus. We're continuing in the passage and the author of Exodus, uh, Moses. Begins to describe the building of the Ark of the Covenant, and I think it's interesting that Moses starts with the Ark of the Covenant. If you and I were going to, to, um, to write out the, it, the the building instructions for each of these pieces of furniture, I, I was a little frustrated, quite honestly, that he didn't start with the altar, the bronze altar, the first thing that you encounter when you like work your way in, man. Come on Moses, have a method to your madness. Start with the altar and then the laver and then you go into the holy place and then you go into the holiest of holy places. And Moses doesn't work according to our western understanding and our western mind. He's he's not worried about one and then two and then three and then four. He just jumps right to hey, here's the most important thing in this whole tabernacle. The tent, every the courtyard. Let's just we're going to jump right to the number one most important thing. And he begins describing the building instructions for the Ark of the Covenant. Now, there are many places throughout our Bibles and many places throughout history that talk about the Ark of the Covenant. The Israelites would often even use it almost like a good luck charm, right? Like, hey, we're going into battle. Let's bring the Ark with us, right? Rub the lucky rabbit's foot, and here we go. There were other there are other stories right of the the Philistines stealing it and it actually blessing them and then they they realize they've got to return it they they send it back on a on a on an ox cart. There's the story remember of of Uzzah the the cart begins to fall and he touches it and God God strikes him dead for touching the Ark of the Covenant. We might look at and go at that and go man that's not fair. I would have done the same thing. That's for another sermon. We're actually going to ignore almost all of that this morning and just really focus in on what's this thing? What is an Ark of the Covenant? Why did Indiana Jones want it so badly? What is this structure? Why was it built? Why did God design it the way he did? Why and how did Israel interact with it the way it was? What was the significance of its parts? What was inside it? And why does all of this matter? Why were there cherubim on top? Was this just... Ornamentation, or was there a reason that the cherubim are, are made there on the top? What are they doing? That's super cool that they were there, but why? One author says this in the tabernacle's completed form is probably the most comprehensive, the most detailed revelation. Of Jesus, the Son of God, and the plan of salvation in the Old Testament, in the Ark of the Covenant, in in the description and application of the Ark of the Covenant. Listen again, because right now you might think, that seems a little extreme. I think this same quotation by the end of this sermon, you may go, got it. In the tabernacle's completed form, now again, this is the Ark of the Covenant and and the the other pieces within the tabernacle. Within the tabernacle's completed form is probably the most comprehensive, detailed revelation of Jesus, the Son of God, and the plan of salvation in the entire Old Testament. We're going to look at three things this morning. I've just got a three one-word outline, and I I wish I could have had a, a more clever outline, a uh, more helpful outline this week. But uh, first we're going to look at the construction. Then we're going to look at the contents. Then we're going to look at the communication. The construction, the contents, and the communication of the Ark of the Covenant. Let's look at the construction. We've already read it, and I'm not going to take time to read through all of it again. But in its basic form, God says, build for me a golden box. It's a rectangular. It's not a square box, but it's just, it's a box. And now it's a really fancy box. It's built of acacia wood, and that acacia wood was plentiful in, the, in that area in the desert. The acacia wood in and of itself wasn't what made it so valuable. It wasn't like mahogany or some valuable wood that we might think of, but it was overlaid with gold. I don't know that they could have carried it on poles if the whole thing was solid gold, right? So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, overlaid with gold. And I think it's interesting that in the holy of holies, in this inner temple, in the holiest place where God's presence is going to dwell in a unique way, that God says, build for me a box. We're used, we're used to hearing that, because many of us are familiar with the story of the Bible. and We've known the story of the Bible for most of our lives. And so the Ark of the Covenant is something that we're very familiar with. But imagine were you alive at this time and, and with, um, with so many of the false gods, when it was time to, to, to make something holy, you would actually make an image of that God. Right? You, would, you would carve an idol of that animal or some kind of physical representation of that God And that's not what God is doing here. In fact, it would be hard to come up with something that you could make to be in some way representative of your God that was less like your God. A box. Make for me, make for me a box. You and I would have made some other kind of physical representation. And now now that you've made that box and you've made it in a specific way and leave the poles in, don't take them don't take them out and put them back in. That's wear and tear on the box. And we have to be ready to move. This tabernacle is a structure that gets taken down and moves throughout. So we're always ready to move. Leave the poles in. Make the poles the way I tell you to. But on top of the box is a, it's called a seat, a mercy seat of pure gold. And this is solid gold. This isn't acacia wood overlaid with gold. This is a solid gold lid. It's a, it's a top. We call it a mercy seat. God wasn't sitting on it. God doesn't have a body. He doesn't sit on anything. The lid wasn't a seat. The cherubim's wings that we're going to talk about in a second, those weren't a chair, right? Like you, you sit on the wings and God's feet are on the lid and his, he's sitting on the wings. That's not how it works. The mercy seat is more like when we use the word seat, referring to a seat of authority or a seat of power, right? We might say that the the county seat is in such and such a location. The, the seat of authority, the seat of government in the United States is Washington, D.C. That kind of seat is what we're talking about here. There's a, there's a locus, there's a place, there's a specific place where mercy dwells. That's what this mercy seat is referring to. See, already, I hope your understanding of what this ark is is beginning to take shape this morning, right? It's not just a chair, it's not the, it's not the seat where God sits. It's where mercy dwells, on this lid, at this lid. One author says, some modern translations call it an atonement cover. Other versions call it a mercy seat. That mercy seat, the phrase mercy seat, the word mercy seat was actually first used by Martin Luther. And then William Tyndale picked it up, and that's why it's translated in our English Bibles this way. It doesn't refer to some kind of chair or throne. It means location, the seat of power. So on this lid are, are fashioned two cherubim, two angelic creatures. One Bible scholar says this, Cherubim are special angels mentioned almost 100 times in the Old Testament. Their first mention is in Genesis chapter 3. Do you remember what they were charged with doing there, right there in the first few chapters? They, they guarded garden of Eden. They guarded the tree of life. When Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, cherubim with flaming swords were sent there to guard the way back to the tree of life. The, these, unfortunately, when you think of a cherubim, you think you probably see some pudgy baby angel with wings and like a little bow and arrow, right? Nothing could be further from what these creatures looked like. They, any, any, any representation, you read through Ezekiel, and he's got descriptions of these. These were angelic warriors, right? So imagine Navy SEALs with wings. Sorry, I'd get my Navy SEAL reference in. Um, it's been a little while. Um, these cherubim were, were warrior, were, they, they um, let me continue to read from the, the uh, Philip Graham Reichen here. He says, This seems to show their function. Unlike some of the other angels, the cherubim are not messengers, but they're palace guards. They're palace guards in God's presence to deny access by anything that's unholy. Now think about where this is. Think about where these cherubim are being put. Think about what cherubim do. Cherubim guard and don't allow unholy things into holy places. God wasn't just trying to think of what would be a cool decoration, what's a cool hood ornament. I got my ark, I'm having a guy make an ark for me, and man, you know what would look sweet, right? I'll take it to Donald and have him do a custom paint job on it. No, it's not like that. These cherubim are representing something very real. Cherubim keep unholy things from having any access to holy places. Is your understanding of the Ark of the Covenant beginning to take a little more shape here? So not fat babies with bows and arrows, but warrior angels. In fact, if we could see into heaven right now, Psalm 99 verse 1 says, The Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. And we think of this as a footstool. As a footstool. Uh, Psalm 132 verse 7, Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. And a footstool, a footstool, this, again, this doesn't mean that God sits there and his feet are on a thing. The footstool was like the, um, at the base of the place of power. So again, it's not describing, you know, uh, like an ottoman that you kick your feet up on. This is the construction. This is, these are basic thoughts about the construction of the Ark of the Covenant. And even understanding the construction of it begins to inform our understanding of what this thing is. But let's talk for a second now about the contents of it. What, what goes in this box? When I was a kid, my dad um, uh, used to take a mission trip to Mexico every year. And one year he brought back for me this little wooden box, and I mean, it's, it was literally, you know, it probably stood that tall, and it was, you know, I don't know, six inches across. Do you still have it in your, okay, Jay's got it in his bedroom, right? So it's been passed down now. The, uh, it, it's not an expensive box. It's not made of acacia wood and overlaid with gold, nothing like that. It's just a little box. Inside the little box, there, when I was a kid, I put just little trinkets in it. I think those same dinky little trinkets, I think my great-grandfather's tie clasp is in there. I think there was a lapel pin that my dad wore that's in there. And then just a, some other little like things that I got when I was a kid. Inside the box are things that were, as a child anyway, things that were important to me. And I put them in a box because a box is where you keep important stuff. Some of you have hope chests, right, or, or just uh, trunks that, that on the inside... Um, It's not so much that the trunk itself, that the box itself is important. We even use plastic Tupperware, you know, big plastic bins now for stuff like this. Um, And the things that are important go inside of the box. And it's not that the box is necessarily the thing that's important, but what's inside the box is very definitely important. God says, there's something I want you to put inside of my box. And most of you even know what's in there. Can anybody tell me what at least one of the things that's in the box? The Ten Commandments, Aaron's staff specifically. Anything? anybody remember the third thing? Yeah, manna. That's right. Yeah, uh, uh, some kind of a vase or, or a container of manna. Let's talk for a second about the Ten Commandments. God calls them here in. Uh, this passage. He says, put, uh, verse 16, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. Inside this box are some really important things. God says, put the testimony in there, the testimony. Now, you and I have some idea of what we think that testimony is, and, and it's right to think of it in terms of the Ten Commandments. Now, let me, let me, let um, me, Let me maybe correct some faulty thinking on exactly what these things are. Again, we have movies that help us tremendously or skew us a little bit on our understanding, right? I'm kidding when I say learn about the ark from Indiana Jones. I'm also kidding when I say learn about the Ten Commandments from Charlton Heston, right? So Charlton Heston has these two stone tablets, and on one of the stone tablets is written what? five of the Ten Commandments, and on the other is written the other five of the Ten Commandments. That's almost certainly not the way that worked. In ancient times, when a covenant was struck, there would be two copies of that covenant that were written down. And you would get a copy, and I would get a copy, and we would remember, hey, we have, we've struck an agreement between the two of us. And today, we still do something very similar to that. I think it was in Matt's sermon where he talked about you know, um, signing a contract with someone, and you, it's very important what you sign your name to, and you, get, you keep a copy, and I keep a copy. God strikes a covenant, and remember that God's agreement, God's covenant with his people is a unilateral, like God says, I'm going to establish this covenant with you, and they say, we're going to do it, we're going to obey it, we're going to keep it, and then we, we know, we go on to know that they don't keep the covenant. God is the one who both uh, uh establishes the covenant, that's the word I was looking for, and ends up keeping it for them. He keeps his end and provides a way for them to keep their end as well. There are two, the, the two stone tablets are almost certainly two copies of the same thing. They probably both have the Ten Commandments and maybe I don't know what else God and Moses uh, would have put on those two tablets. But those two tablets, because God knows if I give you your copy, you're not going to keep it anyway. God keeps both of them, and inside of this box is the covenant. It's the agreement between God and his people. One commentator uh, who was new to me, Umberto Casuto, it's a cool name, he says this, It was the custom in the ancient East to deposit the deeds of a covenant made between human kings in the sanctuaries of the gods in the footstool of the idols that symbolized the deity so that the Godhead should be a witness to the covenant and see that it was observed. Do you understand what's happening here? Let me read uh, read that again. It was the custom in the ancient East to deposit the deeds of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, made between a human king and the sanctuaries of the... Excuse me, made between human kings in the sanctuaries of the gods, in the footstool of the idols that symbolized the deity so that the Godhead should be a witness to the covenant and see that it was observed. So Matt's the king of Hartley, and I'm the king of Dalhart, and we make a covenant with one another. And that is written down. And now this is taken into the sacred temple where our God resides. And in the footstool of our God, think pyramid or some holy kind of shrine like that. We're going to put a copy and we're going to put it in the footstool of that deity and that deity now watches over to make sure that the terms of that covenant are kept. Kazuto goes on to say, this custom makes it clear why the testimony to the covenant made between the Lord and Israel was enshrined in the ark. Among the Israelites, there was no image to symbolize the God of Israel, but there was his footstool and therein the testimony of the covenant was placed and preserved. God didn't just need a place for the, where, where do I put these things? Uh, I'll have them make a gold box for it. The commandment, the, the, the testimony, the, the tablets as we think of them, they're placed inside the footstool of God, and God is now, the just and holy God is now presiding over the covenant between him and his people. We know that there's also manna in there signifying God's provision for his people, and Aaron's rod uh, signifying God's miraculous leadership of his people, and and even the the right of the Aaronic priesthood and the Levites to, to lead God's people as priests. All of these things were under God's feet. They were in God's Footstool. They were there in this seat of mercy, over, watched by these seraphim. So the contents of the Ark of the Covenant are incredibly significant. I've used the word communication primarily because it started with C. And I had contents and um, construction but communication, what, what, am I, what am I talking about here? Well, here in verses uh, 21 and 22, uh, excuse me, verse 22, God says, there I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of the Lord. And so God is saying, I'm going to meet with you, I'm going to speak with you, I'm sp- specifically with Moses, I'm going, to, I'm going to be communicating things to you and you are going to be communicating things to me. God is, going to, God is going to meet with his people and speak with his people, specifically Moses, here in this place, meeting this tent of meeting. Later in the wilderness, wandering, God would meet with Moses and there would, would give instruction to Moses and speak to Moses here uh, in the tabernacle and, uh, uh, and, and from the, the Ark of the Covenant. That's the communicating that God does from Moses the Ark of the Covenant, but there's also some communicating. There's some things that happen from the human end toward this Ark of the Covenant. Remember my main point? Only blood will bring mercy in the face of justice. Let's not not forget, that's the main point that I'm driving at. I'm actually getting you there faster than you may know. Okay? A gold box the top of which is considered the the focal point, the place of mercy. But it's guarded by creatures, they're gold, they're not alive, but they represent creatures that don't let unholy things into holy places. And inside this box are the terms of the covenant that God has established with his people. And God presides over those terms of the covenant The Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology says this, it's impossible that good intentions and honest effort ever can bring us to God. We come in the ways He has dictated or not at all. And how does God say that the Ark of the Covenant has to be approached on the one day each year when the high priest comes in to gain access to it? How does it have to be approached? What has to happen to that Ark of the Covenant in order for the people's sins to be forgiven in order for the high priest not to be obliterated? Yeah, sacrifice. What what has to be thrown on this beautiful golden box? Blood. We don't throw blood on important things. If it's something that's important, if it's something that's expensive, if it's something that's nice, we make sure that it doesn't get gross, that it doesn't get dirty, that it doesn't get defiled in any way. I remember one time when I was a kid, I had gotten a new pair of tennis shoes, um, and, uh, and I looked and there was blood on it. So I wiped the blood off, and I, was, I flipped them around, and I was looking at the other side, and there was blood on that side, and I wiped it off, and then I flipped them around, and there was blood on the other side, and I wiped it off and flipped it. There was blood on my hands. My, my finger was bleeding, right? And so, like, I, I, and I, I was like, man, this is crazy. What's wrong with these shoes? These are, like, bleeding shoes. I got some kind of cool, crazy shoes that bleed. Um, like, we, 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 want, we want blood cleaned off, right? Like, if, y- if you prick your finger and start to bleed a little bit, that may or may not bother you. But, like, if you prick your finger and your blood's going to get on me, like, no. Like, I don't need that to happen, right? Some of us in this room get really queasy even around, <laughs> even around our own blood. I'm not looking. I'm not looking at anybody in particular. Um, And so, uh, God said that they were to come with a blood sacrifice. What's up with that? What's up with that? Is, is, God, is God just some kind of like weird ancient deity where he makes you do things that you don't really want to do, but he's going to get you if you don't? Um, Avengers Endgame. Let me see if I can remember this. They... Oh man, I can't remember everybody's names. Um, Black Widow, and what's the bow shooting guy? What's his name? Hawkeye? Is that his name? Okay. They're at this place of like this pinnacle of doom place, and a guy with a robe comes out and says, I, w- You have to give what you love the most in order to get the secret of whatever. I don't remember enough of the details, right? I just remember that Scarlett Johansson dies. That's what happens, okay? And the bow guy, Renner, is just, that's not his name, Black, Hawkeye, Black Eye, whatever his name is. <laughs> I like Black Eye better. Hawkeye um, gets the secret, but he has, to give. he has to give the life of someone he loves to get the thing that he wants, and it's because there's this, this mean hooded deity guy that makes it happen. Is that what God's doing here? Like, if you're going to approach me, uh, I've got to think of something really hard. You've got to go kill one of your pet animals. Raise these sheep. They've got to be perfect. God's just being discrimi- indiscriminate. He's just making up. And if you're gonna and then take the blood, and this is gonna be gross to you, but I'm gonna make you do it anyway, right? Like a fear factor kind of thing. Is that what God's doing? That is, that is that is not. Thank you, George. George is like, no, no, that's no. George is right. That is not what God is doing. I mentioned earlier that this box contained several things. The one that's mentioned in this passage this morning is the testimony, the covenant, the tablets, this document this, that documents the covenant that God has with his people. It's like, like a marriage license. It's this really important document. Let me read to you again kind of an extended quotation here. There was, there was a problem with this arrangement, with this arrangement of the covenant being in a box and God being above it and we being sinful people. God was above the ark, enthroned between the cherubim. The law was under his feet, written in stone. But God's people were not able to keep the terms of the covenant. The more we get to know the Israelites, the more we see how completely they broke God's law. They were the kind of people who liked to serve other gods. They liked to worship idols that they made with their own hands. They liked to forget the Sabbath. They take things that don't belong to them and they just generally break the commandments of God like you and I do. Therefore, what was in the ark could not save them. What was in the ark could only condemn them. The law deposited in the ark condemned their sin Justly condemned their sin, and in the ark were documents that condemned them for their sin, and immediately above the ark was God. You don't stand a chance. You've broken the terms of that covenant. They're right there, in the box, and God is seated, the seat of God is above this document. This is why this is why the lid. To the ark was so important. The mercy lid, the mercy seat, was used only once a year on the day of atonement. The high priest would come in, and first he would offer a sacrifice for his own sins. The law said, Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. And he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He's to take some of the bull's blood and with his fingers, sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then, and only then, then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. Sorry. And Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. After he made atonement for his own sins, the priest offered a sacrifice for the nation of Israel. The Bible says, He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. And this way he will make atonement. For the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites. Whatever their sins may have been. He comes out having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. Do you see the beauty of what is happening here? This ark of the covenant has the covenant of God inside it. And because of your sin and my sin and Israel's sin, that covenant condemns us and there are representative cherubim there who would keep us from entering into that holy place but when blood is sprinkled on the atonement uh, the place this place of atonement when blood is sprinkled on this mercy seat now those who have no business being in the presence of God are allowed entrance into the presence of God it is only blood that allows unholy humanity into the holy presence of God the blood on the ark, thus, again, I'm reading, the blood on the ark thus provided safety from judgment. When God came dwell, down to dwell with his people, he would not see the law that they had broken, first of all, but the saving blood of an atoning sacrifice. When God looked down at the ark of the covenant on that day of atonement, he saw blood, not your condemnation. Now that's Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Not Israel's law-breaking. He saw blood. So that's nice. We can close in prayer. Friends, it was necessary for Israel to be right with God, but it could not save those. those the blood of those animals didn't save Israel then or us now. It pointed ahead to another seat of mercy. Where's the New Testament seat of mercy? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate place of mercy. We, like all humans, have violated the covenant and deserve punishment and banishment. But Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, came and shed His blood so that we covenant breakers can find mercy. The Bible describes us as having been sprinkled with the cleansing blood of the lamb. And so when God looks at you, he doesn't see all of the law-breaking and covenant-breaking that you and I have actually committed, but he sees the blood of the perfect lamb of God, his son, Jesus Christ. He sees that covering you. That's why you receive mercy. Only blood will bring mercy in the face of justice. Do you see how the Ark of the Covenant teaches us that only blood will bring mercy in the face of, just, uh, of justice? In, in closing, turn with me to Luke chapter 18, and we're done. Luke chapter 18. I want you to, I want you to seed this passage with your own eyeballs. Luke chapter 18, verse 10 Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. What was in the temple? What piece of furniture was in the temple? The Ark of the Covenant was in the temple. This Ark of the Covenant was in this temple at this time. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I mean, this guy is standing in the temple before the presence of God, reminding God how lucky God is that God has him on his team. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't know all that was in the head of that tax collector, but I can tell you that that tax collector's sentence, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, has all of the truth of the Ark of the Covenant in it. He starts with God. Imagine, God before uh, above the ark of the covenant god be merciful to me he understands that he's a sinner that he's broken and violated the covenant that is contained within the ark of the covenant be merciful to me a sinner and that mercy comes to this sinner the same way the mercy comes to any sinner that's ever lived uh, throughout any time in human history that that mercy comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. So here is a man thousands of years later in proximity to the Ark of the Covenant and he understands what you and I are to understand today. You've broken the covenant of God. God stands supremely presiding over the terms of the covenant. There are holy angels. Heaven still has these cherubim who guard the presence of God, not allowing anything unholy to enter into It's presence. So how do we unholy become? How are we made holy? Through the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Only blood will bring mercy in the face of justice. And we learn this from a box. Father, thank you. Thank you. Not just for a box in a temple thousands of years ago, but for the grand reality that it represents that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to shed his blood so that our sins could be covered and forgiven. Father, thank you. If you're here this morning and the blood of Jesus Christ has not covered your sins, then to repent and put faith in Jesus Christ, you can do that right there in your seat. If you'd like to talk to one of the pastors about that after the service, Pastor Matt, will be in the lobby and I'll be here down front. I think for many of us, though, a reminder of what Christ, what God has done for us through Christ and to see it clearly in the Ark of the Covenant is simply a cause for rejoicing. I asked the music team to come and get in place. Brothers and sisters, what if we started every day with the words of this tax collector in Luke chapter 18? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Not, not a prayer of salvation, but a prayer of sanctification. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I have sinned against you. I will sin against you, but your mercy will forgive me of that sin. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If there's any reason that you want to talk with us about anything, prayer that you want, counseling that you want, like I said, Pastor Matt will be in the lobby, and I'll be down here in the, uh, at the front afterwards. Father, I pray that we would be strengthened by these truths from your word this morning. May we be people who find mercy because of the blood of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Let's stand and we'll sing, and then Matt will close us in prayer.